welcome to the Alpha Podcast by Canis Ryan Eford. I'll be hosting professionals that live the Alpha lifestyle from a number of different industries and career fields. You can find us at your favorite podcast apps and sign up on our newsletter for updates. All right, we're live here. I'd like to welcome our listeners to the Alpha Podcast by Canis. And I'd also like to welcome Steve Eklund. Steve is one of the hosts of the Edge TV show with Joe Appel on the Wild TV Network. And Steve, super excited to have you on here. Um, I know this is going to be one big ball of energy over the next hour, hour and 15 minutes. So um, I was I was looking forward to it last night. So first of all, welcome. Well, thank you. And thanks for having me. Hey, you're welcome. Well, you know, it's pretty simple as I was thinking about talking to you on the show, you know, I've had the opportunity to meet you through the hunting industry. Uh, we've actually, due to COVID, we've not had the opportunity to meet in person. Um, we're looking forward to doing that soon. Um, but, you know, tell me, I can tell just talking to you and as I've gotten to know you, um, you've obviously got an extreme passion for hunting and we sh- I feel like we share a lot of that same energy um, and I would assume some of that goes back to your childhood. And so I'd like to start off, just tell us about your childhood growing up. I assume you grew up in Alberta and how you got into hunting and uh, your relationship in hunting as a child. Yeah. You know, um, that's going to, we're going to go back to when uh, wooden nails were still in place. I guess, <laughs> you <know>? <laughs> but uh, yeah, you know, growing up as a kid, I grew up in a hunting family. Um, very fortunate to do so. Uh, I actually grew up in Northern Ontario, so kind of straight above Michigan and, uh, grew up in a, in a Northern community, pulp, pulp paper mill town. Uh, my dad worked a pulp paper mill job for uh, his entire life and then, uh, owned a gun shop on the side. And, uh, we kind of grew up right on the edge of a, a little reservation, Indian reservation up there. And, uh, so we supplied a lot of the, the firearms, a lot of 303 British rifles went into that reservation through my dad. And, uh, you know, for us, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't a sport. It wasn't a hobby. It was just something we did, um, in that neck of the woods. And it, it sounds like it's a hundred years ago when I say this, uh, but you know, we're talking, you know, 40 years ago, um, you had to shoot a moose, uh, to make it through the winter. Uh, if you didn't, you were in big trouble or you had to rely on your neighbors sometimes. Uh, again, with my dad's <clears throat> pulp and paper mill job, it uh, it was unionized. So every couple of years, they'd go on strike and that could last a year. So a year with no pay. And um, yeah, it was just one of those things. So growing up, it was always, you know, me standing there watching my dad get ready to go for his icon, the iconic moose hunt, you know, and they had... They called them gangs back then. Um, so they, they were called the Bull Lake Mumblies. Uh, you know, probably guys younger than me now. Uh, but, you know, I, I always called them a bunch of grumpy old men going out and, and uh, you know, trying to trying to fill a moose tag or two. So. And then share, yeah. share amongst all the families. Um, what age did you start going out with them? You know, I, I got a couple of funny stories. I don't remember a whole lot about my childhood, but there's a couple, you know, it's all kind of hunt related, the ones I do remember. And I can remember my dad, I was probably six, maybe seven. And uh, I was just so upset that I couldn't go on the moose hunt, you know, with him and his buddies. 
And uh, of course, I, you know, he, he would give me the spiel, oh, you're too little. He'd never say I was too young. He'd say I was too small. My legs were too short and I couldn't walk over the fallen trees or walk through the swamps. And uh, I remember the one, t this one time in particular, he, I was bawling my eyes out in a furious mess, you know, cause I couldn't go. And he, he told me, he says, I need you to stay behind and protect the house from elephants. <laughs> so he handed me my little Daisy BB gun and uh, he brought me out to the end of the driveway and he said, just stand here while I'm gone and you look after your mom and your sister, make sure no elephants come in the yard. And I stood there with my little baby gun, you know, I was so <laughs> proud. And that was kind of one of the things that made it okay for me, you know, like I was still contributing as a man, you know, absolutely a little man, and, uh, you know, and still contributing to the family. And I think, you know, the moose hunts, I probably started going on when I was 12. You know, I partook in some of the deer hunts and, and uh, you know, small, small game hunts and stuff like that. Of course, growing all the way up. And, uh, but yeah, moose hunting is probably about 12 years old. That's awesome. Yeah, I remember the same thing. I remember when I was, I was probably about six and I had the BB gun in the deer stand sitting under my dad. Um, he was bow hunting above me. And I was so mad that I couldn't, I wasn't strong enough, of course, to pull a bow back and, or it wasn't accurate enough to, to shoot a crossbow. So I either had my, my toy crossbow with rubber darts underneath him or my Red Rider BB gun. Yeah. So, but, yeah, you know, that it was so, um, it was so empowering. I mean, I can, I can relate to sitting there guarding the house from elephants, right? I mean, you're a young boy and you want to contribute to the family. And if you can't go out on the moose hunt, which was the iconic, opportunity the next best is guarding the house with the bb gun <laughs> yeah. well, it was, you know it was just a, it was a really cool upbringing you know and my dad even though i wasn't a part of a lot of those moose hunts at a young age you know when they brought back the moose if they were able to bring it back i can remember a couple of times uh you know where they where they were able to bring it back you know whether it was a cow or a calf or a, a young bull pole and uh before they would cut it up, they'd let us kids shoot our bows at it. So we would actually shoot at the carcass. That's you know, awesome. Our little fiberglass bows and our chicken shit little arrows and stuff. Like yeah. That. Um, but, you know, in those moments, it was all me. You know, it was all me. It was in my head as a little, you know, adventurous young man or a young boy. Um, I was reliving the hunt and I was you know, I would stalk up to this carcass and I would get close enough and I'd take a shot. Sometimes my arrow would stick in and sometimes it would bounce off, you know. Um, but they actually let us do that uh, before we start preparing and knocking the hide off. Now, really so similar to like, you know, wolf pups or, or lion cubs learning to hunt, right? I mean, they're, they're basically in an essence getting drugged behind and learning all the, the small details of how to hunt. Yeah. And then as you get older, it all comes together. Yeah. You know, and it's, again, it's one of those classic cases of, you know, a young man who aspires to be uh, a superhero, you know, when he's a kid at that age, you know, for mo like most, I think, anyway, uh, my dad was my superhero, you know, he hunted, Absolutely. He played hockey, um, you know, he cussed when my mom wasn't around and I wanted <laughs> to do all of those things. I wanted to be <laughs> Like, you know, uh, so it was, it was a very neat experience. Uh, just, I, 
and that's really where my passion for it uh, developed. You know, is I didn't hunt um, to shoot the big buck. I didn't hunt to shoot anything. I hunted to make my dad proud of me. And that's where that's where it really all started. I mean, he's out on those moose. I can still remember the first time I, I shot my first grouse. And uh, my dad was actually on a moose hunt and I shot a grouse in our backyard. And I was so proud that I <laughs> took it downstairs and I hung it up and I flayed it out, you know. Um, so when he got home, he could see it almost like a deer. You know, we used to hang our deer for, you know, multiple days before we'd get to cut meat or moose. I remember hanging it up and going and, and checking it a thousand times to make sure it was the right angle. So it would look the best when he walked through the, <laughs> to see it, you know? Uh, yeah. And then of course I got on to, uh, I was, uh, I was a big red squirrel hunter, of course, with that BB gun. Of course. And, uh, I shot red squirrels. I mean, I've killed more red squirrels than the plague, I think, you know? <laughs> But it was, it was kind of a cool thing too, you know, in, in my development into my hunting lifestyle, um, because again, we were to whatever we killed, my dad would make sure that we ate. Right. You know? So I'd be killing these red squirrels and he'd be kind of letting this little, uh, it, he would let it slide, you know, he wasn't going to eat the, all the red squirrels. But I found a guy in town and who was our barber. And for every 10 red squirrels, he'd give my family, our family of four, each a free haircut. So I'd pound these squirrels. And but you were a salesman at a young age. Yeah, and then I'd, <laughs> I'd, you know, I'd take the hide off and uh, get them all you know, cleaned up and ready to go. And then I'd bring them you know, a batch of 10 and we'd get haircuts. And again, contributing, right? So my dad was okay with this. Um, now the funny part to that story was I always wanted, I wanted to do something special for my mom. So unbeknownst to my parents, I'd take these little red squirrel hides and I'd, I'd put them in a piece of cardboard and I'd tack them all out like a big bear rug and I'd just let them dry. I was too young to realize, you know, tanning or anything else. So these were stinking bug infested <laughs> hides and I had them stacked. Like no salt. Yeah, no salt, no nothing. I mean, just <laughs> thumbnail tack to a little piece of cardboard. I don't know how many I had, you know, 50, 60, could have been 100. And my intention was I was going to get enough of these and sew them together and make my mom a fur coat for Christmas. So, of course, nobody knew this other than me. And one day I thought, okay, well, I'm going to sneak the boxes of hides out of the barn in the back and bring them in the house. And back in those days, I had fancy wallpaper in my room and it was, it was like a forest, you know, a bunch of trees and I had bunk bed, uh, in my bedroom. So, and, and you ever have those little guns that shoot the little round plastic discs, you know? Oh, yeah. Okay. So I would climb up on my bunk bed with my gun and I'd shoot this gun into the forest. Well, I thought, well, I'll hang these, I'll take the thumbtacks and I'll hang all these squirrels all around in the trees all on this wallpaper throughout my entire <laughs> room. And then I'll get up to my tree stand, which was my bunk bed, and, and shoot these things. So, you know, I'm shooting along and get, and get tired. And, you know, and you hear your mom yell, you know, lights out, go to bed, okay, you know. And I was a kid, I was one of those kids that had to leave the door open a crack, you know, so the boogeyman wouldn't get me. That's right. 
But what I didn't realize is my mom would come and check on me, you know? So I fell asleep. I got all these hides tacked all over the wall. And of course, my mom comes in in the pitch black and she's looking for the light switch and she hits one of the hides. <laughs> a red squirrel. Oh, oh boy, that she exploded, boy. I bet. <laughs> I got my last 10 for that one. <laughs> and right when my dad was finished putting the whooping on me, he asked me, why would you do something like that? And that's when the story about me wanting to make a fur coat for my mom for Christmas came out. And they felt terrible. They <laughs> melted. That's awesome. Yeah, mom, mom changed tune quickly. Yeah, yeah. It was, uh, you know, those little things, you know, in life, when especially when you're young, you know, set the tone for, I think, uh, for a lot of us and what we do in the outdoors, you know. You know, absolutely. That that leads me into, you know, one of my next questions that I know, knowing your background. I mean, as I hear you talk, you know, and I've got those same stories, right? And that's that that getting to go, that moose hunt was a great adventure, right? You wanted to get out there in the mix. And I remember like you hunting red squirrels. I mean, I, I grew up hunting squirrels too with my granddad, you know, graduated from the, I wasn't allowed to shoot the tutu until I could till I could prove that I could be a good enough shot, hit them with the BB gun and the pellet yeah. gun. Yeah. And I, so then it just, I remember the first time, like, like it was yesterday that my dad left me alone in the woods uh, with the 30, 30 across my lap to get the deer hunt by myself. And then it was like, boom, I'm in the wilderness by myself. That And it just, there's this grand sense of adventure. It, it's trust. It's being like your dad. And so, my next question was, I know you've traveled a lot of the corners of the world, right? I mean, your hunting has allowed you that opportunity um, to do that. And so, you know, tell us about the guys listening about, because I know there, there's a lot of adversity when you hunt in other places, right? The language barriers, et cetera. And you've seen that. Um, you know what that feels like. You've had to overcome that. Let's talk about that, the, the places that hunting is taking you and continues to take you and how that's become a part of your life and and the lessons you've learned from that yeah you know it uh again starting out you know aspiring uh, to go on the moose hunt you know at, at the at our bull lake camp um you know shooting squirrels and grouse in the backyard deer on manitoulin island uh, and then you know eventually coming to move you know moving out west uh, it provided, you know, it, it's just kind of kept on going up and up and up and up, but I've done that, you know, that's the one thing that I did do on purpose is, you know, I've, you know, decided to make my life and find work and, and uh, employment, uh, you know, in a place that provided, uh, you know, exceptional hunting opportunities, um, versus Northern Ontario, where I grew up, you know, you're pretty limited on what you could hunt moose, bear, uh, deer, you know, um, and kind of going through that. I mean, I've never, I've never went on a guided hunt in my entire life, uh, until I started doing the TV show. And once I started to do that, I mean, I was, you know, it was just another step and going to these different places like Kyrgyzstan and, you know, Africa, and, uh, I mean, Argentina, all, I mean, you name it. Every single place uh, is a is a whole new experience. It's like you're 12 years old again going on that first moose hunt, and uh, 
it can be difficult. It's exciting. Uh, you know, a lot of, I, I look at every single trip like it's a once in a lifetime uh, because I've been blessed with this opportunity, you know, to do not only to host a TV show, um, but the success that it's had, um, you know, keeps propelling us to hunt more in, and in different places and bring, you know, I use the excuse, it brings great content to the viewership. Uh, but selfishly, you know, selfishly, I'm the guy that gets to go do it. So, you know, that's how I that's how I spin it uh, with with everyone else there. Um, but yeah, the diversity. That's what's so cool. Like, you know, I think about I'm supposed to go to Kyrgyzstan in October. You've been to Kyrgyzstan. Uh, hunting took me to Argentina. Took me to Nepal recently. And yeah. as I think about it, I mean, these are places that I never would have seen, never would have gone. Uh, for sure wouldn't have understood the local customs and been so, I mean, obviously hunting in a camp, right. And in a mountain camp for sure. Um, it's an intimate experience with whoever you're spending it with in a lot of ways. So, yeah. um, I think that for that, I'm so thankful. And it, and I love hearing you say that because, you know, that's people ask me that don't understand, uh, what we do, um, whether they're hunters or if they're hunters that have never gone somewhere and, I'm the same way. I mean, I'm when I went to Argentina, when I go to a new country, I'm like a 12 year old the night before Christmas and Santa's coming the next day. Absolutely. I mean, it's like <laughs> over the moon. Absolutely. You know, it's, uh, I think a big reason, you know, on top of my passion for the hunt, you know, I think a big reason why I keep pushing myself, uh, to do better. And as soon as you do better, you get to do more. Um, is just experiencing these things. You know, it's a, tomorrow is never a guarantee. Um, I can attest to that for sure, you know. Um, and I don't want, you know, the best way to get me to actually do something is tell me that it'll never happen, you can't do it. And, and then you kind of just, you know, my attitude, the competitiveness that I feel inside is like, all right, well, you better pull up your britches and stand aside because I'm going to do it. Absolutely. You know, and, and get after it. I mean, you're talking to a guy that's, you know, again, grew up <clears throat> small town guy. There's no uh, silver spoon. I worked a regular job, you know, as a director of sales and, and marketing for an oil and gas company. Uh, you know, I've been with that same company for 25 years now. It was the first job that I got when I moved out to Alberta. And uh, it kind of just, opens up the doors, you know, um, GD, no post-secondary education for me, uh, just hard work and, and a determination to be successful. And I think that every single person, and I'm not knocking education. I think everybody should go out and get as much education as you can. But at the end of the day, it all comes down to what's inside of you and how bad do you want it. You know, you can have anything you want in life, but you got to be willing to make the sacrifices to get it. And by God, there'll be sacrifices. That's right. Well, and that's that's exactly why you're on here. And that's the whole purpose of our podcast. You know, the Alpha Podcast is to tell the stories of people who we feel live that lifestyle, right? And I'm glad you brought that up because, you know, you do have another job. I mean, a lot of people that watch your show probably think this is all you do, right? And you're out there basically doing double time. And yes, people, and, and I can attest, and I know a lot of people can too, people can look and say, oh, well, the hunt is just, it's just, it's Steve's time, right? They don't see that as a second job, but I know how passionate you are. And when we're out there and we're filming those hunts, 
we're busting our ass to make sure that we want to do those local people, the, the terrain, the experience justice. And so you're working just as hard on your show as you are as the director of sales. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You know, it's, again, it comes down to, um, what do you want? What do you want in life? Right. And, uh, when I first started doing the TV show or never, never mind the TV show. When I, when I first started hunting, you know, we were out there to be successful because at that time it was heavily, you know, the meat in the freezer was, you know, the number one factor. And then, you know, you start to progress in life, uh, in anything you do, whether you're playing a professional sport or whether you're hunting, you know, I'm out there and I'm out there to have a good time. I'm out there and to, to enjoy, explore, to wander. Um, but I'm out there for purpose too. Um, I'm not a guy that enjoys second place in anything I do. Uh, super competitive that way. Maybe to the point of being a little bit detrimental sometimes. <laughs> uh, but, you know, and then you fast forward to uh, this TV opportunity that came up for me in my life. And when I first started doing the TV show, I can tell you, and so can cameramen, because I went through a lot of them, um, that I was super hard on them. But I didn't really, I was there to hunt. I was going to selfishly hunt and do my thing. And a cameraman would film it, make it into a TV show. And if people liked it, they liked it. If they didn't, I could care less. But then the competitiveness starts coming. And I start learning about TV and production quality and um, this, that, and the next thing that makes a good TV show. Or what I, at least what I think makes a good TV show. And then I start to get competitive and I go, okay, well, now I want the number one TV show. I don't want a number two TV show. And so it's something that I strive for every time I go out there. Um, we don't necessarily achieve that on a monthly basis with the ratings, but we do, we do pretty damn good, you know, for a life expectancy for a hot show. Uh, you probably know this, you know, two, three, four years max while we're filming season 12 right now. It's um, fantastic. Yeah. So it's been receptive you know, really well with the viewership. And for some reason, uh, the fans uh, just dig the hillbilly in me. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think they know, I mean, I think they know you don't half-ass it, right? I mean, you're, you're going to do your best and you're going to work hard and that, you know, just meeting you, um, you know, you radiate that. So um, talk, let's talk about that. And another way that I see that um, knowing you, um, knowing Joe, Hunting also gives back to you in a weird way, in the sense that to do to do most hunts, you've got to be in at least decent shape, and a lot of the hunts you're doing, you've got to be in great shape. And so it's it, you can it's forcing you to stay in shape, yeah, and train. Yeah, it does. I mean, I'm one of those guys that yeah, I'm in decent shape. Um, I'm not a pillar of athleticism. I can tell you that, you know, um, but I'm, you know, decent shape. Yeah. The, the better shape you're in, the further you're going to be able to go, the faster you're going to be able to get there. But I'm a huge, huge component of, I guess, mental toughness. Um, it rivals my competitiveness. You know, it, it's, uh, I'm the guy that, you know, you know, when you're right about you have to sneeze, your, 
you're just about to sneeze, well, I believe that in your head you can tell yourself, don't sneeze and you won't sneeze. You know, it's the stupidest little things. Amen. Um, and I truly believe that, you know. Um, I've had health issues in the past, and I chose mentally that uh, they weren't going to beat me, and, and, that, and therefore they couldn't. When I hit the mountain, I mean, everybody assumes that a guy like me, they go, oh, you must hike all the time and uh, train hard. I can sit here and honestly tell you I've never climbed a mountain ever in my entire life without a tag in my pocket and a weapon in my hand, ever. I don't, I just don't do it. Um, it's one foot in front of the other. Um, in order to achieve your goal that you set out for, it has to be a forward motion all the time. And at the end of the day, if you get to sleep for a few hours, then fantastic. You can recharge sleep for a few hours and then do it all over again. But it's the little things again, I think from a, you know, even more than a physical, from a physical standpoint, a mental standpoint, when most people bend over and tie up their hunting boots, you know, to you, you might be just tying up your hunting boots, but to me, I'm putting on my, I'm putting on my, I'm putting my shield on, I'm getting ready to go to battle, you know? And when I feel those laces tighten up, I can feel it through my whole body that I'm going, I'm going to war and I have no intention on losing that battle, <laughs> you know? And that's, uh, so I don't know, maybe it makes me a little bit weird uh, in a sense. And I don't want to take away from the, the physical side of it. I know it's, it's huge uh, in the market right now. I mean, we're partnered. I mean, it's, it's Canis Athlete. Um, yeah. And, you know, as long as I can stay in, in relatively decent shape, then, yeah, I'm good to go. Because between that and my mental toughness and competitiveness. But you, you bring up a... You bring up an excellent point. And as you know, I've, I used to do triathlons, half Ironmans, um, that, and that, that's a mental game too, right? Uh, you have to, you spend a lot of time by yourself, a lot of time training. What I've come to appreciate about mountain hunting, um, I mean, it, it is a hundred percent a mental game and you hit it dead on the, the better shape you're in. Theoretically, the farther you can go, the quicker you can get there, the, the longer you theoretically weather permitting you can stay on target right but if you don't have the mental toughness it's all for naught yeah and and i've seen that too you know i've seen guys in alaska last year i know some other camps that um there's a two or three failures and you know guys in their early 20s um in good shape but had never pushed themselves like a mountain hunt and it's it's the little it's the little stuff right it's the it's the, the abrasion of, of pants rubbing or your bootlace rubbing a certain way. It's, it's the unstable rock that people haven't trained for. You know, you can, you can do a stair stepper all day long or you can cycle all day long, but you're going to be uncomfortable. And if you can't get comfortable being uncomfortable, you know, and a part of that probably helps me is waterfowling growing up, staying out there, you know, freezing uh, way early in the morning. Cause if, you know, the public ground that we hunted, if you didn't get out there at one or two in the morning and just, basically park all night you weren't going to get your spot but no that's it it's and that's that's what i love about hunting in the mountains because you're dead on it is so mental and that's helped me um in so many aspects of my life i mean you have to say if i there's nobody going to get me up there but me 
right? And there's going to be pain. And as I've, I've changed my training, even just to just put myself in uncomfortable situations, just get comfortable being uncomfortable. You know, the other day I was on a, had a few too many around the campfire and knew I needed to go, you know, start some semblance of a workout the next day. And I got on the, the Peloton bike and I was about five minutes in pedaling and it was 95 degrees down here in Arkansas and I'm in the garage and I'm like, there's no way. And then I look down and I'm like, wait, there's no way you can, you can finish this 30 minute workout. I'm like, if we were sheep hunting right now, I'd be, I'd have another four hours of this. So what do you mean? It's all, and it told me mentally I'm being weak right yeah. now. Yeah. you have. To We're going to get through it I and mean, you take yourself back to the mountain. So yeah, I love the mental aspect of that. Every mountain hunt that I've ever been on sucked. Like it was terrible. At some point in time, every single thing reaches out and punches you in the face, trying to tell you to quit, trying to tell you to pack it in, go home. And again, it's all about, it's all about your desire. What are you there for? You know, uh, I've had hunts, you know, 10 day hunts that I, I didn't get out of the woods until day 25. Uh, burning 40 feet of lumber a night to stay warm in minus 30 when you're living in a tent, you know, for 18 days. Uh, you know, just so many different facets and so many different hardships, uh, you know, boiling down a, a jet boil full of snow to get one ounce of water every single sip, you know, uh, rain beating in from sideways, hitting you in the face, uh, twisted knees, you know, using your rifle as a crutch to, to come out of the mountains, heavy packs, of course, all of this for me, you know, and I'm just like, suck it up and don't be a pussy. Mm -hmm. Really, at the end of the day, you want to do this or not? Because you can go to Disneyland if you want and eat hot dogs and run around, but that's not what I do. This is what I do. And as much as every one of these hunts, I can honestly say sucked. When you come off of that, whether you're successful or not, there's a time period, you know, a week, probably a week, your mind and your body starts to recover from all that hardship. Um, and I remember, you know, I, you open up the fridge door and you take out a bottle of water and you crack the top. And if you don't smile and laugh at yourself, then something's wrong. Cause you realize how easy we have it, you know, in our day-to-day -day lives. And to put yourself in those scenarios, you have to be passionate about it. Uh, otherwise, you know, it, I mean, it's not something I'd ever recommend if you're like, you know, I've grouse hunted and, and, uh, you know, now I'm going to be a mountain man. Well, I encourage it, but it's like, you need to know what you're getting into. Like prepare. I'm packing right now for, uh, I'm going to be in the mountains of the Yukon for 30 days, starting two days from now. And, uh, I'm packing for the suck, you know? Uh, and that's, that's all I can do. I laid all, I laid out all my gear on the floor. I'm looking at it right now. That's why I keep looking over here. And, uh, you know, you start grabbing all these comfort items and you put all these comfort items along with all the essentials and, and then all of a sudden, okay, you stand back and I'll take, I'll take the next two days and I'll start removing these comfort items because I know better. I know better now. I didn't know better when I first started in Mount Hunt, but now I know better because the most prestigious 
comfort That's item right. that you'll ever have in the mountains is less weight. <laughs> so, so you start removing all of these little weight. Oh, well, maybe one night if I'm laying there and the stars are all, I'll read the book. Well, that book weighs seven ounces. I'm not taking it. So, yeah, it's just, there's a lot of stuff in regards to a backcountry hunt that's, uh, you know, completely terrible. But again, once your mind and body recovers from that hunt, I have never felt more empowered in my entire life. Yeah, to know that I just, I accomplished that. And Absolutely. two weeks ago, and you want to be, you want to be back there. I went off to the side and I'm standing on the side of a mountain somewhere, literally with tears running down my face because I hurt. This sucks. I miss my family. Uh, and, you, and you pull yourself through it and you get through it. And then you accomplish this thing. And all of a sudden you're sitting there going, when do we go again? Absolutely. You know, when I was in, uh, and I have, we haven't talked about this, when I was in Alaska, um, we went down to the wire. I think you saw that video and the sheep was down. And as I turned to the camera, the cameraman, he's holding the camera and man, just big old elephant tears of joy are just rolling down his face. And I'm like, I don't even know how he's holding that camera still, you know, and it was just this combination of we worked so hard. We'd gone so far. Everybody was tired and, and battered and bruised. And, you know, we, we, we didn't think we thought it might not happen, but we're damn sure going to give it everything we have to make it happen. And that last range there it was. And so, I mean, that sums it up, right? That sums up the emotion of guys absolutely willing to grind to get it done. And it, it just all comes full circle at that moment. And it was, it was so, so cool. And it's something you'll never forget. But so let's talk about your hunt for a second. Cause I saw, I know you're about to leave. I saw you posted your, your pack and uh, man, that got me excited, right? It's seeing the gear laid out. I'm like, man, <laughs> uh, heading up to Dawson city, Yukon. And uh, you know, it's going to be a really, I'm really looking forward to this trip. So I'm going to be hunting a sheep that I haven't hunted before. That's the fan and ram. This is the, the, the cheetah ram, if you, if you want to classify it as a stone. Uh, but, you know, so it's the Yukon stone, the, the, cheetah, the cheetah ram uh, for most diehard sheep hunters. Uh, I haven't hunted one yet, so I'm really hoping to, uh, to pull that off. And when that is concluded, uh, we're going to move on to grizzly bear. Awesome. Are you going? Is Joe going with you on this? No, one no, I'm uh, I'm going up solo. Uh, we'll have uh, take a small crew, one cameraman, and then uh, of course, law up there. You have to be with a guide. Uh, it's a camp that I've wanted to go to for a long time, Reynolds Outfitting, and uh, you know it's right. it's one of those camps where it's like four years out. You need to book four years right. out uh, in advance. Um, so many what I think, you know, historical things happened up there. Uh, you know, Franklin Ross was a guide up there. We have a Franklin Walk or Ross guide award still at our Wild Sheep Foundation. Uh, he passed uh, tragically in a snow machine accident uh, years ago. Um, but the guide that I'm going with is a good buddy of mine, Byron Wolf, and he owns a, a wolf hunting adventure. So, known him for many many years he was with me on my uh, very first uh, sheep kill ever um, that's where I actually met him which is a whole other podcast probably part two uh, <laughs> but uh, 
Yeah, so he's going up with me as my guide. He actually guided up there 15 years ago. Uh, he guided with uh, Franklin. And uh, just, it's going to be an emotional uh, deal, you know. Um, okay. Yeah, there's a lot of things going on there on that side of it. He's really, you know, jacked up and excited to come and do this with me. And I'm excited to explore some new ground and, and uh, you know, tackle the mountains of the Yukon. Are you taking bow and rifle or just rifle? Or <laughs> No, I'm taking primarily bow on this trip. Um, definitely want to do the sheep, uh, try to do the sheep with a bow. I'm 90% bow. Um, I'm, I never say I'm not going to use a rifle um, because I'm a hunter. Um, right. I don't live it myself. I want to do it with the bow. We're going to, we're going to put in every effort possible with the bow, but I mean, you know, there's, I'm a bow hunter. I'm a rifle hunter. I'd shoot them with the shotgun. I'd shoot them with the muzzle loader. I'd kill them with a dart gun. I don't care. Uh, I'm a hunter and, and I'm going to try to get it done no matter what. But, and it goes for both the, the sheep and the grizzly bear. Okay. Um, I want to do the, I want to do the sheep with the, with the bow because I think it's the most epic thing, epic species you could ever harvest, uh, with a bow and arrow. And I want to do the grizzly bear with the bow and arrow. Uh, because it's simply going to make me feel like a man. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> is the the terrain there? You've got some crags and stuff, so it's going to help, right? Yeah, I mean, it all depends. I mean, the uh, you know, on every hunt, it's the terrain, the weather, and the animals that dictate the hunt. Uh, and that's one of the things I learned, you know, doing the TV show is, you know, there was once upon a time they were trying to give me. Um, what do, what do they call it? Where they write it all down. Hey, this is how it's going to go. Uh, and I'm like, no, you can crumple that up and throw it in the garbage right now. Um, it's going to be the animals, the terrain, and, and the weather that dictate it. And we'll see what happens. And we'll see what kind of storyline evolves from it. And again, um, it's not so much about um, the animal. You know, like we all want to be successful. We all want to do the drip and grin photos. Uh, in the hero shots, but as far as the TV is concerned, it's such a small little percentage uh, of what we're showing people. I want to take them on the adventure, and that's what I like with outdoor TV. I mean, I'm a huge fan of outdoor television, and I and I gravitate to those shows that take me on the adventure because it, it either makes me want to be there or makes me want to go. That's right. Oh, and that's. That's what it's all. It helps you make your list and, and your your bucket list, right, of, of your hunts. And yeah. When I, when I was, um, you know, I think when I was young, the first guy I started watching was, uh, I think, Tom Miranda and Shockey. And it was more for me, like, I mean, I grew, I grew up hunting squirrels, white-tailed deer on public land. And, of course, as you said, as hunters, what's next? You know, oh, wait, I can go other places and hunt, which is my passion, the uh, thing that I love to do more than anything. And I wanted to know about those destinations, you know, like, oh, where are they going this week? I want to see if I ever want to go there. And that's yeah. what I love, the, the sense of adventure. Um, are you So we've never talked about this, and we don't get enough time to talk anyways because we're both busy. Do you, are you shooting fixed blade, mechanicals? Fixed blade. Uh, fixed, fixed blade guy, 100%. All day. All day. What grain, what grain arrows are you shooting? Um, about 418. Okay. So I guess not about yeah. it's exactly 418. <laughs> Dead on. <laughs> you know, we, uh, we're all gearheads, right? So 
to our listeners, we actually don't, people think we, we might have a lot of opportunity to talk. We actually don't get to talk that much because everybody's running yeah. around trying to, trying to plan the next hunt and do our, our other day job. You know, with the, with the archery stuff, I mean, that's uh, something that, you know, I've been passionate about my entire life. Uh, you know, I shot professional archery for years. Again, just from a competitive standpoint, you know, I, I, I never intended to shoot professional archery and follow a 3D circuit around. Um, but it was to make me a better hunter, a more proficient killer. Um, and so I'm, I'm a huge bow nerd, you know, like I'm arrow weights and, and you know, building, building the, the meanest arrow I can build. Uh, with my physicalities, my draw length, my preferred, you know, bow weight, all that kind of stuff is it'd be relevant to like uh, a car guy building a muscle car. You know, you literally pour that much time into something as simple as the components that you're putting on your arrow, the arrow itself, um, inserts, broadheads. Fletching, you know, you're doing 2.1s, you're doing low profile, medium profiles, you're doing three inch, you know, lighted knocks, wraps, uh, all this kind of, all for spoiler, yeah, just one little component of what's going on. And, yeah. but I think that's, and then it tr- kind of translates into everything else that I use right down to boots and clothing and backpacks and everything else. Um, it's best of the best. For me, are you shooting single pin sight or multi pin sight? Uh, three pin sight. It kind of depends. For this hunt, for this particular mountain hunt, I like a three pin sight uh, that's adjustable. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, you know, when I shoot twenty eight inches, I don't produce a lot of speed by choice. You know, 280, 285 feet per second is the sweet spot. Um, it's stable. It's forgiving. Um, it's and it's plenty fast. Um, you know, so many people get worked up on speed. Oh, I got to shoot 300 feet per second. They're looking at IBO speeds before they buy a bow. Um, you know, when it comes to that, it's, it's super simple. I can, I can hand you the keys to my Ford truck and say, Hey, Ryan, run to the store and get me a jug of milk. If you don't mind, you're like, yeah, no problem. And you go to the store and you come back. Now I hand you the keys to a Ferrari. And I say, hey, run to the store and grab me a jug of milk. <laughs> Different story altogether. Because Absolutely. Number one, you're going to utilize that speed and you don't have the ability to control it. So that simple right. little trip to the store for milk in the Ford truck is super safe every time. Gets the job done, super safe. You take the Ferrari, you'll be phoning me in five minutes telling me you're wrapped around the telephone poles. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great analogy. <laughs> <laughs> and very accurate. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I got arrested in the mall parking lot for doing yeah. Yeah. For ripping shitties. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What, what, um, okay. Another question. You've been doing it a long time. Rifle caliber in the mount. What's your favorite caliber? Uh, your go-to if you could, if you had to pick one. Probably easier answered 15 years ago. And now, I don't really think it matters. Um, almost every optics, you know, and that's heavily, you know, technology has come so far. Our optics right now, we're dialing for distance. So, you know, I was always a big component as a younger man of the 
heavy hit and flat calibers. Um, things like seven millimeter STW, you know, shooting times Western. Something that I can point, you know, out to 300 yards, put my crosshairs on hair and touch it off and have an impact. And nowadays, you know, um, number one, we've, you know, for the most part, we've stopped snap shooting, uh, you know, and uh, don't get me wrong, I still love a good old fashioned Saskatchewan bush push for whitetail. Um, you know, at 40 mile an hour, but, um, for the most part, you know, we're shooting stationary targets or semi-stationary targets and we're dialing distance. So it just boils down to, you know, then, okay. So we're talking about impact, but if you want to talk about killing now, okay, what's proficient? Well, you know, we could talk hours about bullet weights, the way bullets react differently upon impact. Um, but again, it's now I, I would turn that conversation more into accuracy and give you the same spiel that everybody's heard a hundred million times before it's put it in the right spot and, uh, and it'll go down now, double-edged sword on that one for me, because I'm also the guy that's not going to sit here and tell you, uh, and preach about how I wait for an animal to be broadside, because I think it's total bullshit to be honest with you. I'm going to pump my time into being super proficient with my weaponry, whether it's a bow or a rifle. Um, and I'm also going to pump a lot of time into knowing the anatomy of the animal that I'm after. And, you know, I'll be the first one to tell you at, you know, from the ground, 20 yards, I'll shoot a 1600 pound moose square in the chest facing. Yeah. Um, and it won't go anywhere no. because what happens is that arrow goes in and doesn't come out. Every time that animal moves, it hurts. So he stands there, then dies and falls over right there. Um, where so many people, I guess, in, uh, that are that do what I do, you know, for a living, uh, especially in a public eye, are going to sit there. They just feel like they have to tell you, "Oh, it has to be broadside because that's ethical." And yada yada yada. Well, again, I think it's horseshit. I mean, we've just heard it so many times before. Uh, it's untrue. Um, spend the time, get proficient with your equipment, become a master at it, and know know your boundaries. And then have enough willpower to stick to those boundaries. Because the next question mm -hmm. is, That's right. you know, well, how far would you shoot an animal with your bow? Well, you know, depends. Me, you, Bill over here. I mean, everyone has a different level of comfortability. And... Uh, the biggest part of that is, okay, if you say 60 yards is your max and that bull elk of a lifetime walks out at 65, you have to have enough willpower to either wait or pass, you know, and that's it. Now I'm known for flinging some arrows for sure at some distance. Um, but it's important to remember that I'm not doing that on my first arrow. You know, I'm getting into a comfortable shot distance. I'm putting an arrow into my animal, but I'm also the guy that will absolutely empty my quiver. If I can still see that animal, I'm going to put as many holes in that thing as I can. Um, because number one, I believe it's more ethical. Number two, simple math is more holes means more blood means dying quicker. That's it. Done. Simple. <laughs> I don't think Joe Appel knows we're on the podcast because he's calling my cell phone right now. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, I think I think the broadside thing some over time started teaching children to shoot, right? So you can make it simple and then we graduate. But I think that's the gap. And then it's become PC for the general public. Um, and, and that's what people need to be told. Spend more time with your weapon and understand the anatomy of the animals. I mean, that when I went to Africa, you know, animals' hearts sit different. Their, their lungs sit different. Um, that's what really opened my eyes when I started studying each one and going, okay, now wait a minute. Yeah, now we need to – it's a totally different game. It was so hard. I mean, the first time I went to Africa – you know, I draw back, I did the whole thing bow hunt and I draw back and I put my pin behind that and getting like getting to squeeze over up into that shoulder. Man, what a mental. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. And then you drill the first one, you get great results and you go, well, I guess, you know, <laughs> the only one, the only animal over there that I didn't center punch on the front shoulder. And I'm not trying to sound like a pompous prick. Look at me and how awesome I am with my archery gear. Right. But was the Cape Buffalo. And he was quartered away. And I tucked it right behind uh, that front shoulder. And half of my arrow went into him. And he went 300 yards and plowed up. Wow. And that, that's a great shot, too, on a Cape Buffalo, right? I mean, slip it in behind there. Yeah. Was just, no way. Good I, penetration. I still remember the outfitter. He was trying to hand me the rifle. He wanted, it was a big Buffalo and it was a pretty unique, they had never killed one um, new, new company. And he was trying to get me to shoot it with the rifle. And I was like, mm, I'm not doing it. I'll shoot it with my bow. Uh, if I get the opportunity, but, that's it. So. But keep that rifle ready right behind me. Okay. Let's yeah, see where yeah. this arrow goes. <laughs> Well, let's let's talk about. Um, I know you're passionate about it. I know you believe in it. I've said, you know, following you and talking with you, conservation. Uh, I know you're a big proponent of conservation. Um, I know you've seen it work both in Canada. I know you've been vocal about that at times um, when when uh, that conservation tries to be in, infringed upon by government authorities who probably have no idea or no education about how it works. And you've seen it in other parts of the world, like Asia, like Africa, where it's, it's easy to see it's real. Talk about that. Yeah. You know, it's your background. The, the conservation side of it for me is, is a huge part. And I mean, again, you know, it's the word conservation itself. It's something that an outdoorsman, a true outdoorsman uh, will learn and appreciate but it's also the word, it's a tricky word because it's a word that can be misconstrued as, oh, you're, you're using the conservation card as a hunter. You're out there killing animals uh, and you're calling it conservation. So for me, it's more trying to educate as much as I can. But I think that's more on the, I'm a big component of making sure that our hunting heritage is, is intact and available for the future generations. Now, the part of conservation, the biggest, when you say conservation to me, the biggest part of conservation for me is proper balance, you know, and there's a, a plethora of things that go into the term conservation. That's a big platform, really, when you look at it. <clears throat> but when I look at it, I narrow it right down and I, and I go, okay, the same animals that I'm killing, these same sheep that are on the wall behind me, you know, right down to the funny little, it's not funny. It's funny to me because of my personality. Wild Sheep Society will say, you know, uh, putting sheep back on the mountain. And I'm a big component of wild sheep. 
but I live and breathe every day dreaming about the next time I take one off the mountain. Never mind, put one back on. You know? <laughs> but in order to sustain a healthy balance, a healthy herd, a healthy flock, it doesn't matter what we're talking about. Balance has to be in place. 50 years ago, as a society, we didn't have the technology or the manpower to really intervene a great deal. We let Mother Nature take care of her own, you know, through disease, starvation, uh, human encroachment, all of these things that play into that balance. The simplest things like a whitetail tag. Here in Alberta, we got, let's call it 140,000 whitetail estimated population. Any single person can buy an over-the-counter tag for 24 bucks and go kill a deer. And, you know, so they take that population base, everybody buys a tag, you know, let's call it 50% of the people are going to be successful and they get their numbers from that way. Then you move into things like mule deer and moose. These, all these species have draws. So it takes four years to get a draw, 10 years to get a draw, you name it. Um, but again, it comes back to, you know, like if an anti-hunter starts to harass me and says, oh, I can't believe you're, you're killing that, you know, deer or that cat was the big one. You know, uh, we had an absolute global meltdown when I killed a mountain lion out here a few years back. And, uh, you know, how could you kill such a, a beautiful animal? Well, don't kid yourself. I think those mountain lions are majestic, absolutely beautiful. Um, and because I care about them so much, I'm going to do my best to make sure that we're maintaining the populations um, that we know. We Because unlike 50 years ago, we now have the technology and half-assed manpower to actually come up with, you know, very, you know, sound statistics um, that warrant how many tags are given out. I mean, mountain lion hunts, one of the most critical. You have to call in every day and check and see if the zone is, is still open or still closed because you might be able to kill two toms and two females out of a zone and then it shuts down when we're hunting. So, you know, conservation, it's a, it's a, it's a big word for me because I think it's super important because we do care about these animals, you know? And yeah, you know, all of the tags you buy and the conservation dollars and right down to wetlands and, you know, here in Southern Alberta putting in fences that won't, you know, harm the animals or, you know, antelope. We did an antelope fence there not too long ago. I think it's still actually continuing on. But yeah, it's a, it's a big part of it because I think you just have to, again, if you want it sustainable for years to come, if I want my, you know, 10-year-old niece to have the same opportunities, if she chooses, that I do to hunt and explore the wilderness, um, then yeah, it's, it's something that every outdoorsman should pay great attention to. The first time I went to Africa, I asked my tracker, how, long, how he got into, I think Charity was roughly 57, had my son there. And I asked him how he got into hunting. If he hunted his whole life, he said, no, we were cattle farmers. He said, we had so many cattle being killed by leopards and lions. We started poisoning the leopards and lions. And a PH um, basically reached out to them, contacted them and said, hey, we need to... We can't, this is a road to nowhere. We're going to have no leopards, no lions left. What if you could make more money hunting than cattle farming? 
And he said, well, how would that be possible? He said, well, you're going to have to basically shut down the, this small cattle operation and you're going to be hunting with me, but we're, then we're going to protect, I need your help to protect the leopards, the lions, you know, the animals in this area, the animals that will be part of this concession. And he said, okay, let's, let's try it. And he said, I've never looked back. You know, the, we shut down the cattle operation. We made way more money because we gave those animals value. And he said, now in this area where the, the animal numbers across the board were on the decline from poaching uh, for both for, for bush meat um, and killing them because they were killing their, they're eating their livelihood, right? And the cattle, um, now the numbers are, are back up and through the roof. And so, especially in third world countries, I think that's really cool uh, to see that. Um, you know, saw that in Nepal, yeah. um, part, parts of the world. When you look at, I think it's Botswana, you know, opening up the elephant season over there. You know, it's another, that's another species. It's a trigger animal, you know, for, for anti-hunters or people that don't understand. Um, but if you, I mean, the land mass in Botswana doesn't support the population. I mean, we're talking about an animal that eats 500 pounds of vegetation a day or I mean, you'd have to Google that shit to make sure I wasn't lying, but, um, you know, it's so much vegetation, the landmass doesn't support it. So if you love elephants, are you going to watch them starve themselves to death? Or are you going to go in and, and, you know, create an economic opportunity for that landscape by allowing hunting, which they have, and open it right up, you know? So meat, money, jobs and you're looking after the animals absolutely and once they close hunting in botswana that they had i've you know talked to numerous people over there i mean massive encroachment on the villages right and then guess what all the guys that have the ability to come deal with the problematic animals that are running through the village and trampling homes are have now left the country because hunting's closed and so those those phs that they got that call to go deal with that problematic elephant are somewhere else, Tanzania, Zambia, Namibia, South Africa, et cetera. Yeah. Yeah. And they decide, Oh wait, we made a mistake. Let's open it back up because it's actually healthier for everybody to have it open. And you know, we're always going to make mistakes. You know, our wildlife biologists here, uh, I think they do a fantastic job, uh, for the most part, but again, we're still evolving. We always will. I mean, again, you go back 50 years and you look at where we're at today, uh, with some of our sound scientific data that we have in place. And, who, you know, we're going to be that much further ahead again in, in 10, 15, 20 years. But it's still human-driven. We're going to make mistakes. We can't jump up in a helicopter here in Alberta and count every single wolf that's running around. But we can get a very good idea, you know, through our collaring programs and everything else, you know, and then <clears throat> harvest as or kill them off as we need to, uh, to stay, to sustain the other populations, no different than the cat, you know, uh, the same crazy leaf lickers that are, you know, telling me they're going to kill me and my whole family because I killed a mountain lion. It's beautiful, majestic creature. You turn around and you go, well, do you like white-tailed deer? Oh yeah. We love white-tailed deer. They're so cute. Well, that cat, you know, kills like 86 deer a year, one cat. You know, and then they go, oh, actually, they don't, they don't even, it doesn't even phase them. They're so far gone. You know, the animal phasers. 
so far gone. Yeah, 47, 47 elk and 80 deer a year. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's it's just like, you know, the first time I went to Alberta hunting black bear, um, I had a wolf. Uh, I've talked about this before in another podcast. I had a wolf. I basically walked up on a dead bear carcass, and this this wolf was by himself, alpha male, stood his ground, and I was at 20 yards and slowly walked backwards, and he snarled at me, and he was he's standing over this bear carcass, and he wasn't moving. And the next day, I hear this thing barreling through the woods. It sounded like, you know, I take this is my first time to Alberta, and this bull moose comes barreling through the timber, and there's four wolves, timber wolves behind him. And that's when I learned. Um, and these things, if, if, if the wolves go unchecked or any predator goes unchecked, there'll be nothing left. I mean, they're going to, and then, and then, and then, and then they're going to eventually die off because there's too many of them and the inbreeding and the disease. So it's all got to be managed. Yeah. And you know, there's so many different foundations and it's, it's just nice to see at this time, you know, in this stage of our existence, uh, most of these foundations are working part parcel. You got build their foundation. You'd think they're primary focus would be mule deer and then you got the elk foundation but they're all kind of working together right down to the sheep foundation and everything else and it's really nice to see that but you know there's when you look at the anti-hunter side it's very animal specific you know uh, so yeah it's it's hit or miss with these folks in elk. A bunch of batshit crazy people out there, <laughs> and and I am not the one. Just because I'm the one that's out there hunting and killing these animals doesn't make me the psychopath. I promise you that. If you could hunt, you got one hunt for the rest of your life. What are you hunting? God, I hate this question. <laughs> I don't know if I can answer. You know, you come over a ridge and get over top of a big ram that's bedded down. I might as well. You might as well just wrap a superhero cape around my neck right there now <laughs> you know but the next the next thing you're you know here comes this bugling elk into 15 yards and he's coming in um you know it's just you rattle in a big white tail big mature white tail you know five six seven year old white tail that just shouldn't have come in but they're the ghost yeah you know um i don't know I think I I answer this with sheep always, and I think the only reason I answer it that way is because I feel like it's I feel like when you are successful on a sheep hunt, like there's no sheep, you'll never see a sheep hanging on a wall in a taxidermy form that was there wasn't a ton of effort and work put in. Well, there is now with game farms, I guess. You can run over to Saskatchewan and shoot a slam in one day, I guess, uh, you know, <laughs> in a pen somewhere. <clears throat> but that's not my jam. So, yeah. you know, real sheep, you know, these, uh, I've got, I've got good friends in that same context that, you know, are deer ranchers. And uh, I'd have no problem going in like February when there's no seasons on. Uh, and it's, uh, hey, Let's go down to Texas and, and kill one of these deer in the fence. Uh, sure. I call it broadhead testing, arrow testing. I'll test some deer. What I'm not going to do is I'm not going to come out and tell you, you know, how, how badass I was to stalk this thing. I mean, it's in a fence, man. Like, huge or not, you know, I, I look at, I'd rather, sh me personally, I'd rather shoot a 155-inch free-range whitetail than a 255-inch farm deer any day of the week um but i'm not gonna i'm not gonna pigeonhole myself into never being able to do that by 
ratting myself out on this podcast right now. Either. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, you look now, it's an interesting topic too. That, that could be a whole nother podcast, right? Yeah. We could spend a whole nother hour on yeah. that. But, yeah. you know, it's um, most of Texas now, I think, is, is under fence. Um, and I think there's uh, people have asked me, I mean, I see there's obviously teaching children to hunt guys that are, you know, bow hunting guys or girls with disabilities. Um, you're on a 20,000 acre ranch in Texas, you know, it's fenced because your neighbors are fenced and you want to protect your animals. Um, I get it. Right. And I'm the same way. I mean, there's, there's obviously a need for that and we won't get into that now because that'll be, we'll be here for another an hour or two. Um, but yeah, that's that's part two. Yeah, no doubt, no doubt. Well, hey, you know, I want to. I know you've got uh, you've got gear to pack. You're about to head out, so thanks so much for joining us today. Look forward to talking to you again, and good luck up north. And look forward to hearing those stories. I'll keep you posted, man. I sure appreciate it. Okay, all right. Well, we'll talk to you soon. All right, buddy. All right, thank you.